Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And look, for more than eight years, the Republican Party has been split between Trump supporters and Trump opponents. And the anti-Trump Republicans have been at pains to persuade the rest of us that Trump is not really what the party stands for. Here we are in August. I co-wrote an op-ed in Newsweek with our weekly panelist on this show, Republican political consultant Alicia Preston, titled, The Republican Party Has One Last Chance to Save Itself, in which we said it was put up or shut up time. That was then, this is now, this really is the final hour. Because in the New Hampshire primary, if Nikki Haley wins or comes close, there's still a chance that Donald Trump won't be the nominee for the third straight time. But if she doesn't, it's over. And for Republicans, maybe for all of us, it's hard to argue that the New Hampshire primary has ever been more important to help us understand what's happened there, where we are, and more important, what might go down in the primary. We are very privileged to have Andy Smith. I, I feel like I know your for, your formal name is Andrew, but throughout New Hampshire, you are known as Andy Smith, the director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center. You run probably the best known poll coming out of New Hampshire. You've teamed with CNN recently to put out the most cited poll coming out of New Hampshire. You are a close observer of New Hampshire politics and the New Hampshire primary. Welcome for the first time, Andy Smith, to Beyond Politics. Thank you. It actually sounds like I know what I'm talking about, but during the primary cycle, that's not usually the opinions that you get from most people. You do know what you're talking about. Actually, you're such a, tr a trusted source on all things having to do with polling within New Hampshire. I actually once availed myself of your expertise when I worked in the state Senate. We were trying to get rid of the stupidest law on the books in New Hampshire, and that's saying something that had to do with something called push polling. It's way down in the weeds, but you provided the key testimony, and the Republicans were like, wait, Andy Smith is saying this. Okay, it's fine. It'll be fine. And so anyway, thank you for that. You helped clean up the, the laws on the books in New Hampshire. Let's get to the primary. Look, I, I, I don't think you disagree with my characterization of this may be the most pivotal New Hampshire primary ever. Just walk us through for people who haven't been living and breathing this um, every day, or maybe you do disagree. Walk us through what's the race been like in New Hampshire up till now? It's been certainly Donald Trump's race to lose, but it also does illustrate the divisions that you spoke of within the Republican Party in New Hampshire. Since we've been polling on this race really for the last couple of years, Trump was has been pretty consistently at 40 percent, 42 percent, and it's been very stable. And his supporters have been saying that they were going to vote for him. They were definitely going to vote for him you know, a year ago. So he's got a locked in base of 40 to 45 percent of the Republicans in the state. The problem is that the anti-Trump Republicans are not unified at all. And this was a problem in 2016 when Trump only ended up with 35 percent of the vote in the New Hampshire primary. But it was the rest of it was split across so many other people that the number two candidate was John Kasich at 15 percent. So it, there was no unification. This time around, I think that what you're seeing is this uh, greater unification, and it may have happened too late. So the characterization of the race was coming into 2023, our poll in January 2023 had Ron DeSantis at 43 percent and Donald Trump at 30, showing that there were some people there that were really concerned about this, that they were concerned about Trump. They were worried about what was going to happen with him. All of the Trumpy aspects of Donald Trump 
were being recognized by voters and DeSantis looked like a good alternative. That disappeared very quickly for two reasons. First, I think Trump recognized a potential threat and went after him very hard. And he was not somebody that was really well known other than governor of Florida won re-election. So he, he was still a, a bit of a blank slate and, and he did not do a good job getting out in front of that, defining himself before Trump defined him. That was one thing. And then the second thing that Trump was able to do, and this is actually fairly remarkable, and political scientists are going to be looking at this for some time. He managed to tie himself, a, an extremely wealthy person, to the, in, in the minds of his supporters, who are largely more blue collar, that he's one of them. And not only is he one of them, he represents them. And an attack on Trump is an attack on them. And that, I think, has bonded some of those people that may have been drifting away from Trump back to him. So every time Trump gets into trouble, including the indictment that he's had, his support goes up among his uh, supporters. And he did make a, a maybe the second most prescient quote about Donald Trump's political career, that one more indictment and he's he's guaranteed the, the race is over. He's guaranteed a win. That's, I think, my brief characterization is that, to your point, there is a segment of the Republican Party, a fairly large segment, maybe not the majority of the party, but a fairly large segment of the party that it is Donald Trump's party and he represents them in their minds. Can I follow up on that point for a second? Because this is something that I've written about, I'm citing Newsweek a lot here in this discussion. I, I put out a piece in Newsweek saying I'm challenging the idea that the indictments have strengthened Trump. And I, so I want to put a finer point on what you just said, because it sounds like you said two things in there, that your polling has supported the overall pattern that we've seen across polling nationally, which is Trump has been pretty darn flatlined. He's been, especially in New Hampshire, it is a very flat line. It's a very tight band that he stayed in. And I've questioned, including in that op-ed, this idea that the indictments have strengthened Trump. I think what you just said maybe explains it a little bit better, which is it's not so much that they've strengthened Trump, but that Trump supporters who might have been tempted to drift have had a bit of a rally around the flag effect. So you've seen, you know, a little bit of an arresting, no pun intended, of, of that drift. But overall, it's looked to me, both in your polling and in the overall polling pattern, that the dominant story of what's happened to Trump in the last year has really been more about his opponents and how anemic their challenge to Trump has been and how especially Ron DeSantis has just fallen right down a slope and off a cliff. And in fact, my major contention is that what looks at first glance like the indictment strengthening Trump is actually, when you step back and look at the overall pattern, it's just DeSantis support falling off that cliff. And you see that second choice voters for DeSantis disproportionately go to Trump. And so all you've seen is to the extent that Trump has gotten any stronger, it's been DeSantis support falling off and those voters going to them. What do you make of that? Did I kind of capture what you were saying right? I, I think so, because the way I look at the New Hampshire electorate, and I can, New Hampshire is a little bit different than the country, but I think it, the Republicans here, not terribly different. Trump support is a little bit lower. But in New Hampshire, 
we've got this 45% say that are really Trump MAGA supporters, 40 to 45%. They've been within there with that one, with the exception of that one little blip in January. They've been with Trump all along. You've got maybe 30% that are really anti-Trumpers. This is the old traditional wing of the Republican Party, the Rockefeller Republicans, typical New England Republicans. And then you got these people in the middle that like the Trump administration, they kind of thought he's been treated unfairly, but they wish they didn't have all the Trumpiness with it. And those are the people that I think that Ramaswamy and, and DeSantis have been going after. And what's happened is that middle is getting pulled apart from the Haley part. She's pulling some of these people off. Maybe they were Christie supporters, et cetera. Some of the anti-Trumpers are drifting over to her. And I think she's done a good job messaging that we can talk about why that works. DeSantis kept sticking in the middle. He was kind of vanilla and didn't really attract anybody. I could say he was a poor candidate as well. Didn't He made, I think, a lot of strategic mistakes as well as his own abilities as a candidate weren't that good. But when people would look at him and say, well, he's Trump light, why do I want Trump light when I got full strength Trump over here? And you're right, Ramaswamy's voters, after he's dropped out from Iowa, after Iowa, have gone to Trump. DeSantis' support is bleeding off towards Trump because he's not really offering anything different than Trump because voters are willing to, to live with the Trumpiness, I think, now and think that Trump is think that Trump is the guy to beat Biden, which eventually that's why we have nomination contests is to nominate somebody who can beat the other party. That's also been the one strength of Haley's campaign. And she said, yeah, I can beat Biden as well. And I can beat him more easily than Trump can. But that's taken a flyer on an unknown commodity for most voters where they know what they've got with Trump. So given what you've just said, why has Haley been able to mount a reasonably effective charge in the last two months? She's doubled her support in some polls, including yours. At least recently, she's come within what we might call striking distance. Mm -hmm. Why? I think a couple of things. First of all, people started to pay attention. We have a myth in New Hampshire that we've got these really engaged voters that are paying attention to politics for a long period of time. In reality, they started paying attention to the primary, maybe in December, but seriously after New Year's. People pay attention to politics when they have to. So that, I think, is the one thing. Secondly, New Hampshire does have a more moderate electorate compared with other Republican electorates around the country, in part because it is the least religious state in the country and the social issues that resonate in other states just don't resonate here. And the candidates who push social issues, and I'm speaking around Ron DeSantis here in New Hampshire, made a big mistake. So those voters, those people are looking for somebody else. Chris Christie also bumped up in, in the last uh, month or so as well as an alternative to Trump. He was the full strength alternative to Trump and that capped his ceiling pretty hard. He wasn't going to go anywhere. And Haley was kind of nice to be opposed to Trump, but politely opposed to Trump. Switching the message around, saying a vote for her is younger people, new, new, new politicians, new faces. Let the old stuff go by. Let's bring in a new generation of leaders here. So she was able to attack Trump without attacking Trump's supporters somewhat. And then when Christie drops out, his support goes over to Haley because that's all that's left. Uh, and I think that's the reason that we've seen this increase in support for Haley, not so much because she's the ideal candidate of anybody, but she is the candidate that's available for those people that don't want Trump. There's really no other alternative now. You know, one of the things that's fun when you're talking to pollsters 
real experts like you is it's if you're a football fan and you're sitting next to a football coach football fans like if you're a casual fan when the play starts you watch the quarterback right you watch where the ball is football coaches they're watching the offensive linemen they're watching the linebackers they're they're looking a kind of a click level down at the details and the nuance so it's fun to ask pollsters like you you know most of us look at polling results and we look at the top lines you are obsessed with a click down the cross tabs and, and some of the other numbers and nuances so when you did that unh cnn poll and i offered that in the proper order there was there a number that grabbed you as really significant down in the cross tabs or somewhere below the top line is there something that that you really stopped and said huh that's interesting a couple things first the first one is that the high percentage of undeclared voters who said they were going to vote in the Republican primary. The highest that it's been before this year was 40 percent in 2012, another year where there was not really a competitive Democratic primary that was Obama's reelection primary. That, to me, was pretty shocking. We've been seeing that number now is around 45 percent, 48 percent in some of our polls, meaning that there are a lot of people who are undeclared and a lot of them who are necessarily Republicans in their political leanings saying they're going to vote for Haley. So this this primary has opened an opportunity for real anti-Trumpers, real Democratic anti-Trumpers to vote against Trump early. So that is the one thing that I think that was really interesting. And here's an important thing to remember about New Hampshire primaries, that no candidate has ever won the New Hampshire primary in the modern period since 1972 without winning the plurality of their party's registered voters. Hmm. you got to win your base. And you usually have to do that because there's, frankly, just more of them showing up in the primary than not. So even people like uh, John McCain, famously independent here in New Hampshire, and many people think that he won the New Hampshire primary in, 19, or in 2000 because of independence. He didn't. He won among registered Republicans. And that's where Trump has his support. So we're, we've We've got another uh, poll coming out Sunday morning, and uh, I'll maybe hedge what I'm going to say here a little bit, but Trump is winning significantly among registered Republicans. Over 60 percent, almost two thirds of the registered Republicans are going inside the sausage factory here. I should tell people we're recording this on Friday. We were going to hold it for Monday. So now we're really okay. We can talk. This is a double (laughs) tease here because people are going to have to go check out your poll, and they're going to have to listen to all of this. Trump is winning among registered Republicans. Were you going to say something about what you're, what you found about what the undeclareds or independents oh, are yes, going to yes. do? That's the interesting thing. So Trump's got roughly two thirds of the registered Republicans. Haley's winning among the undeclareds, but she's only at 58% there. Yeah, Paul, you anticipated She needs it. to be at 70% plus in order to make up that gap. And are there going to be enough independents who are really Democrats that will cross over and vote in the uh, Republican primary to make up that gap? And I think that's a really stiff challenge. I'll use an analogy for the New England fans up here. Uh, the dividing line uh, between Red Sox Nation and the evil empire somewhere in the middle of Connecticut about a New Haven. If the Yankees are playing a team that maybe can challenge the Red Sox to get into the World Series, how many Red Sox fans are going to go down to Yankee Stadium and root for the Yankees because they don't like the other team? It just doesn't happen. There may be a couple, but it really doesn't happen. It's hard enough to get people to go and vote in their own party's primary, let alone to go and vote in the other party's primaries. So Haley's doing not as well as she needs to 
and it's among a group of people that are not as likely to even show up on Tuesday. So I think that she's in a difficult spot because the vote for her right now is not because of Haley in particular. It's the not Trump vote. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. That's really interesting because, Paul, we were going to ask we were going to ask Andy about what he was most keeping an eye on. And I was going to make my case. You know, we've been going on other shows together and we've been saying, like, look, the thing to understand about New Hampshire is this dynamic with the undeclareds. And what you showed in your previous poll, which is Trump out ahead by something like 30 points among registered Republicans, Haley out by almost that much in the previous one among undeclared. So really this was gonna come down to what is that voter mix that we see in the primary itself? And we were gonna throw all that at you. It sounds like we've got a grand combination of those questions. I mean, is that basically it, that the, that the number one thing to watch for if you wanna play armchair pollster at home and sound like a real pro when you're watching the primary returns is what is that mix of how many undeclareds are showing up versus how many registered Republicans. And what you're internally gonna be trying to figure out is, is Haley doing a little bit better among those undeclareds than your forthcoming poll is showing? Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to. And it's a tough challenge for Haley. Trump, again, known commodities out there rallying big, large numbers of people. And he's actually taken these information of these polls and turning it around as an attack on Haley by saying the, pe- the only reason that she has a chance of winning is because Democrats are going to vote for her. That's because she's really kind of a Democrat. So he's you know, tarring her with the people who are voting for her, saying she's one of them. He's saying that he's one of the, the blue-collared MAGA supporters, which is maybe a plausible or an implausible statement, but to tar Haley with the people who are voting for her rather than understanding that they're voting against Trump, he won't say that. But uh, that's working, I think, as an effective message against Haley by accusing her of being a Democrat because that's who's likely to vote for her. Can I go back to something? You just touched on it here. And in a previous answer, you talked about the identification with Trump by blue-collar voters. And clearly among non-college-educated white blue-collar voters— Trump rules. And New Hampshire is largely white. It's a fairly highly educated state, but there are clearly significant blue-collar, uneducated white voters. Have you had answers in your polls about why this identification has worked? Is it because Trump makes outrageous statements, because he says he basically evinces not caring about any moral restrictions or any authority or anything else. And he says, I'm above it all. What have, can you tell us, give us some clues about what is it that has caused this strong identification? Well, there's been researchers that have looked at this pretty carefully, more broadly than just from an individual poll. And and the thing that they're taking away is first that there's a large segment of the American population. I'm from Northeast Ohio. So I'm from a blue collar area of the country. Uh, outside Cleveland. There's a large section of the population, this working class population, maybe small businesses, business guys that have not seen a pay raise. In fact, they've seen their pays declining uh, versus the cost of living over the last 30 to 40 years. There's been a long time stagnation within a significant part of the American public. 
they see and they don't see that Washington has done anything to help them. So we see a lot of support for other minority groups. And I think that's the immigration issue is the one issue that kind of lit that on fire. You've got groups of people that are haven't done well economically over the last 30 to 40 years. They don't know who to blame, but they know that they there are these other people coming to America that are, are getting more attention than they are, and they may be taking their jobs. And when I, Trump came down that elevator in 2016 and talked about going after immigrants, that resonated to a lot of people because they've been in a bad economic positions and nobody's been paying attention to them. So that, I think, is the sociological view for it. In New Hampshire, we've seen a very much of a sorting of our political parties. When I moved here from Ohio, I looked at the Republicans here. I said, most of you guys would be Democrats in Ohio. And then I, or, or I looked at the and then I looked at the Democrats. I said, you guys wouldn't exist in Ohio. <laughs> Democrats in New Hampshire are the social and economic elite party. They are not the blue collar party. And this sorting is happening across the country. The, the coalition of Democrats now is economic, social elite uh, folks and minorities. And that's left the Republicans with the old traditional white America speaking and also the religious broadly speaking, Americans as that coalition. And Trump has managed to speak to that through, I think, the issue of immigration, which is the number one issue among Republicans, even though it doesn't impact New Hampshire particularly. But they see that as a broader issue for America as a whole. All those so Canadians first of all, coming down, taking take, yeah. all those Canadians coming down to take the jobs. But this, well, they're a, staying up. They're staying up at Old Orchard Beach. That's <laughs> an important point, though. Because first of all, both you and LeBron James come from Northeast Ohio. He took his talents to South Beach. You took your talents to New Hampshire. Did you make the right choice, Doctor Smith? That's question number one. But number I two love New is Hampshire. I love living in New Hampshire, and actually, it's very similar to the small towns I grew up in Ohio, which were all settled by people from Massachusetts and Connecticut. So. Well, there you go. That was so was fun. much of New Hampshire. So I, yes. but I mean, to the last point you made, I think that's interesting because Paul, you're right. The Canadians aren't coming, but perhaps the best insight that was ever offered on like, why are these people so into Trump came from our old friend, former New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg. Paul, you originally thought you were going to run for Senate against Judd Gregg for a hot second. And in 2017, he said, I think the best piece of political analysis on this that I've ever heard, and the full quote is, the, the people, Trump supporters, they're more interested in the verbal jockeying and the confrontational verbal approach than the results. So long as he's poking a stick in the eye of the people, his constituency feels are a problem, the rest won't matter. Now, Chris Saliza, then of WAPO, paired that with a further quote. This is from... Uh, the Washington Post reporter Jenna Johnson, about what Trump supporters expect. Here's what she wrote. The wall along the Mexican border is one of Trump's most enduring and popular proposals, prompting raucous cheering and chants wherever he goes. Yet many of Trump's fans don't actually think he will build a wall, and they don't care if he doesn't. Many also don't think Trump as president would really ban foreign Muslims from entering the country, seize oil controlled by terrorists, or deport 11 million illegal immigrants. They view Trump's pledges more as malleable symbols than concrete promises, reflecting a willingness to shake things up and to be bold. And so here's the thing, you know, Andy, one of the, one of the interesting things that you've always done as a pollster, and it, it used to drive campaign operatives like me 
kind of a little crazy because we were hungry for data is you're very careful in your early cycle polling results about not pushing too hard for to push people into the category of what candidate they support. You have a higher than just about any other pollster I've ever seen number of people who haven't decided. And, you know, for campaign managers, we're like, come on, man, just give us the number, give us the number. I'm beginning to come around to your way of thinking because most normal humans who are not junkies like us, that is actually the way they see the world. They don't really, as you said a moment ago, they don't pay attention to politics until they absolutely have to. And they don't think about things the way we do. When we hear Donald Trump say, I'm going to build a wall, you know, I'm going to get rid of the 11 million, we take it literally. He doesn't mean it literally. He means it symbolically. He is sticking, a, a, he's poking a stick in the eye of the people that his supporters don't like, the things that they see as a problem. He's doing a riff. He's doing a routine that they like. And I think it's as simple as that. I don't think they actually believe that he is going to, I don't know, turn around the job situation or address the alienation they feel from kind of like the social movements that have taken hold in our country. But he's talking about them and he's sticking a stick in, the, in their eye. And that's it. Politics he's, is performative art, not politics as governing. He's well, certainly I don't think anybody equated Donald Trump with governing, but he is or a, art. an absolute ideal troll in the for the media and for the people in Washington, because he says all of the things that drive their that light their hair on fire. And he loves to watch that. And everybody else likes to watch it, too. I, I would imagine there are a lot of regular Democrats that like to see that as well. You see a lot of the arrogance that's there in D.C. and the disconnect between D.C. and the rest of the country. And Congressman Hodes, you could probably speak to some of that. You've seen some of those people down there. I've been in the bubble, baby. Wait, yeah. arrogant Washington insiders. Hold on. <laughs> I resemble that. It's, you know, it's a great thing to, it's a great way to do it. That People have been doing that in America, throughout American history, you know, that it's easy to steer, uh, to stir people up. And frankly, if you go back into our, our constitution, the founding fathers knew that as well. And that's why they only gave the house of representatives to be elected by people because they knew that they would be attracted to demagogues and their passions were easily inflamed. And they had the, they said, okay, we'll have the Senate, but the state legislatures will pick the senators. That'll be calming them down. And for president, my God, we can't let people pick the president. We're going to have just smart electors that the states choose themselves. Usually their state legislatures choose the electors because the president's too big of an important thing to have people vote on. It's like the old saying that democracy is too important to be left to the people. And that's built into our constitution. That sort of um, distrust of public sentiment is there. And they might have a lot of good evidence for this. I think it was uh, P.T. Barnum that said, nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. So is this the toughest presidential primary to predict that you've ever done? Or there've been a lot crazier times actually you know it's this is the weekend before and things can happen over the the final weekend and exit polls show that 40 percent or so of people say they make up their mind over the last three days of the campaign right but this one's been fairly stable to your point trump's numbers have been where they are having ramaswamy drop out has bumped him up closer to 50 percent we have him at about 50 percent in our last poll right. haley benefited from christie dropping out but not enough. The best thing that Haley could have happened almost happened, but 
she needed DeSantis to stay in the race and to have DeSantis campaign and effectively campaign in New Hampshire to pull some of that support away from Trump. And it's not happening. DeSantis' support is diminishing. He's down to like 4% now, 3, three or 4%, 5%. He's just not been able to catch on here. And I think that makes this a very difficult thing for Haley to win. It's She's got close, but, uh, you know, I, I looked at what Haley was doing and people would say, what was her strategy? Her strategy was to be the person who is left standing to go against Trump. And you don't do that like Christie did by attacking Trump right away, really hard all of the time. That just attacked a lot of those Trump without Trump supporters, Trump, the Trump presidency without Trump. And she did a great job, but she's playing her cards and her cards weren't the greatest cards that are there. She's like drawing two cards to an inside straight. She got one of them to get where she is now. She's the last person standing. But to be able to get over the hump there is, I think, a really tough challenge for a couple of reasons. First, Trump is a very good campaigner in attacking his opponents. He hasn't had to attack Haley that much yet, but you're seeing the, uh, the radio ads coming out over the weekend attacking her more directly. The second thing is the press have not come around to Haley. I think they understand that she's not really there. Frankly, the press want to have Trump as the nominee. You look at what happened to cable television after Trump's out of office, they went broke. The media love having somebody like Trump that they know that there's going to be a bomb that's thrown out and they can even they can run to the presses when he says something that they know is over the top. They know that it's not really him being truthful about what he's going to do, but it just sets their hair on fire and they know it'll set the hair on fire of their editors. There's like this, this strange sort of alliance between Trump and the press. They need each other. Don't don't and, let uh, your don't let your friends at CNN that you're doing the poll with hear this. They're I'm, wait no wait they know all about it. Never mind. They know all about it. Right. They know, they all, know about all about it. it. And so but, do their advertisers. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right. Since you brought up the media, I would like to refer <laughs> you to my most recent Newsweek article. Our listeners have heard a little bit about this because I have really got to be in my bonnet about this. I looked at the results in Iowa and the, and I compiled, I got some help from Politico. I compiled all the major news outlets and the headlines that they led with Trump romps, Trump crushes, Trump, this Trump, that Donald Trump got half of the vote in Iowa, the most magafied heartland MAGA people to ever MAGA. And he managed to inspire 8% of registered Republicans in Iowa to show up and half of them voted against him. Forgive me if I say I am unimpressed. I am not exactly taken with his dominance here. And I also did offer the thought experiment to readers. Hey, what if Joe Biden had done that? What would the headlines have been then? You know, be creative about it. My point is the media would have been well within their rights to say, hey, Trump stumbles. Questions are flying. Like he's he's vulnerable here. But I'm hearing a different story talking to you in a way, because you've made the case that political scientists have pretty well established that a significant number of voters are making up their minds in that last week. And I, I, I pollsters hate it when you 
ask them to refer to a different pollster's work. It's, it's not cool. So I'm going to do it to you because we go back a long way. You know, the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, the St. Anselm's poll, they came out with an interesting finding a couple of days ago. They show a seven-point rise for both Trump and Haley since their previous poll. But they suggest that Haley's rise is largely driven by former Christie supporters coming over to her. Trump's rise is largely driven by the momentum from Iowa, that people saw the Iowa result and acted accordingly. I guess my point is, it, it does seem to underscore my argument that the media had some choices here. Nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it. And that Trump has benefited in significant and, and real and measurable ways from this storyline that he was so dominant and such a fait accompli coming out of Iowa. Whew, that was a stem winder there, Andy. What, what do you make of all of that? Historically, I don't think there's really any evidence to back that up. No candidate has ever won the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus, no Republican candidate has ever won Iowa and New Hampshire in the same cycle because the electorates are so different. The, as you mentioned, turnout in Iowa is so low. It's a very religious state. The voters there are driven largely by evangelical Christians there. And New Hampshire is the least religious state in the country. And our Republicans here, a significant number of them are still those old Rockefeller Republicans. And there have been campaigns going on in both states at the same time. So there's really two separate lanes going on. And that's why New Hampshire is always... The candidates who win New Hampshire are much more likely to win the nomination than candidates who win Iowa. And you think of uh, Rick Santorum, Pat Robertson, you know, they tend to be much more what we would say the religious fringe of the uh, Republican Party that doesn't resonate in New Hampshire. Now, nobody would call Trump as uh, someone who is on the religious fringe himself, maybe is in a different direction, but he certainly his supporters are there. So I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the case of what happens. But I do agree that the message is more important. The perception is more important than the reality. And the perception that people get is from the press. And to your point, yes, 50 percent is not so good if you're the quasi incumbent. So the two ways I'd look at this uh, to kind of illustrate this point. In 1992, Bill Clinton loses fairly decisively eight percentage points to Paul Songus, but he comes out of here and he's the comeback kid and he's on to the on to victory after that because the press wrote that story. They didn't write the story. Bill Clinton comes back a little bit, but he still lost to Paul Songus, maybe the most boring candidate for president ever. On the Democratic side, that's saying something. Yeah. And, and you know, we won't talk about some of the other ones. But that was, the, that was the story that came out. And then you go back to 1968, where LBJ is unpopular, war is unpopular. He doesn't run in New Hampshire. They have to put together a write-in campaign for him in New Hampshire. He wins the write-in campaign. But the story is, he didn't win by enough. He's too weak. The party's divided. They can't win in November because of that. The difference is the person at the top. Johnson took that as a message that says, you know what? They're right. I'm the incumbent president. I'd have a hard time winning, but I'm also a Democrat. I'll step back for the good of the party and let the party put somebody forward. I can't imagine Trump having that conversation in his head for a split second that he would step back and let somebody else do this because he's dividing the party. And I think that's really the difference in, in the, pol the politics of Trump versus the politics of most regular politicians. 
So I, I got to ask, given what you just said, is Marianne Williamson going to win the New Hampshire primary? Or is if you want to put a bet on that one, I would I, I'd be happy to <laughs> take your money on that. Or is Joe Biden going to win the right in by enough to avoid the LBJ problem? Here's two things that I think is going to happen. First is it won't matter because the press will write only about the Trump, the Republican side. They'll largely ignore the Democratic side as they've done throughout this. And But my sense is that... Our polling is showing that Biden will do well enough. He'll get in the 60 percent, maybe 70 percent of the write-in vote. And I'm sure they've already written the, their storyline to feed to the press that we had a write-in campaign. He wasn't on the ballot. Of course, a lot of people weren't going to vote for him. They didn't show up. And if they did show up, they voted against Trump in the uh, Republican primary. And they're going to vote for Biden anywhere come November. And there's a lot of truth to that. But it's the story. It's the interpretation that comes out by the press that's going to win. And that's why I, even with Trump... Imagine even if Trump lost to Haley here, if she, he loses to Haley on Tuesday, the story that's going to come out of Trump's mouth is it was a rigged primary. The Republican Party there was against me. See, Governor Sununu was against me. They did everything they could. They threw everything at me. They brought Democrats in from the other party to vote against me. I still really would have won. If it was just the Republicans, I win. So let's throw it aside. And the press would run with that. Let me throw one bonus thought at you here. I opened by saying that this was the Republican Party's last stand. And it just kind of occurred to me that if your most recent, which you can't fully reveal, your, your most recent polling results hold up on Tuesday and registered Republicans overwhelmingly vote for Trump, regardless of what happens with Haley on the strength of undeclared voters, is the last stand over? I mean, even if Haley kind of manages to limp along and, and find a pathway here, has the Republican Party kind of spoken here? I think so. So our final numbers are showing it. 50% Trump, 39% Haley. And if Haley doesn't win New Hampshire, she's done. And DeSantis, to me, is already a dead man walking. I think he's his campaign operatives probably say, hey, we still got some money left in the bank. Let's go spend it a little bit. I got a couple more mortgage payments to pay off. They should buy um, your record collection with it. Yeah, the most best, the best investment I've ever had. For people um, listening, not watching on video, I, I got to tell you that Dr. Smith has the most outside. His Zoom wall is the hands down winner of anyone we've ever had on the show, because most people are like me. They put their vanity wall of books up behind them, some of which they may have read. You actually have listened to 5,000 records behind you. It's amazing. It's, you know, you can make money in the stock market. I saw a good little cartoon that said, you know, one woman is saying, yeah, my, my husband bought Apple at 38. And the other woman is saying, my husband made the, the smart move of putting our records in the attic. And meaning that they're worth more than Apple would have been. Vinyl is it. Vinyl yeah, outsold CDs. Vinyl is where it's at. You live long enough, everything comes back around. Sorry, uh, I, I took you off track. You were just saying that DeSantis has basically got a little bit of money to light on fire. I was suggesting he light it on fire with you. Absolutely. You know, the the, the political world, we, we forget how much of it is driven by the political operatives, you know, the business of politics. And Congressman Hodes, you've seen this, the pressure there to spend every last penny you can, to, to raise as much money as you can. It, it's very intense. And campaigns end when the money runs out. And very seldom do you have somebody who makes a, a rational decision about when they pull out, because the kind of people who run for president 
they're already somewhat sociopathic anyway, to think that they're the only person out there that should occupy the most powerful job on the planet, to be the most powerful person in the world. I mean, from my perspective, anybody who really wants to run for president should be immediately disqualified on psychological bases. But that's not the world that we have. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Why don't we get you out of here on this? <laughs> one more. One more. Question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, what's your favorite, funniest, standout memory from behind the scenes in the primary? First, anything that has to do with Vermin Supreme is entertaining. Um, I, I do Vermin quite a bit. The funniest one, the most memorable one I remember, this was back in 2004. We were doing polling with Fox News during the, the last part of the cycle there. And we were doing a tracking poll and I would send numbers down every night to Dana Blanton, who's the polling director at Fox News. And I should say the polling directors at all of these media organizations, they are really good. They're interested in getting things right. So anybody who blames the polls for this and that, I've worked with pretty much every one of them. They're all really good. Anyway, this is the night of the Iowa caucuses. And I send the numbers down to Dana and we're talking on the phone. Did you get these and so forth? And all of a sudden she stops and says, oh my God, oh my God, what's going on? I'm thinking my numbers are bad. They're showing something that's really dramatic there that I missed. And she says, did you see that? See what? She says, aren't you watching television? I said, no, I work at a university. We don't have eight televisions on our walls like you guys do at a TV network. And she was referring to Howard Dean's scream in Iowa. And She's seen politics for a long time. Her jaw dropped when that happened because to her, that was one of the most staggering things that she'd ever seen. So this myth about how Howard Dean, it was the enemies of him that kept playing and repeating the screams that made it bad. She says, no, this was immediate. You saw this, you knew that this was something that was going to be political news. So that was maybe one. The second one was in the 2008 campaign, the final debate, the WMUR debate on the Democratic side. We had done some polling with MUR, and uh, one of the questions was, which candidate do you think is most likable? And uh, Hillary Clinton was at the bottom of the list there. In the first half of that debate, she had gotten beat up. She was not doing, Obama was looking really good. Even John Edwards was actually looking pretty pretty good in that debate. The last question because before they go to the intermission, Scott Spradling asked this question, and he tones it down. He told me about how he toned it down so it didn't right. sound so much of an attack. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, um, you know, Hillary, the polls are saying that you're not very likable. How does that make you feel? And she says, well, you know, it really hurts my feelings. I'm a regular person. You don't want people, you want people to like you, for goodness sake. And Barack Obama comes back and says, Hillary, you're likable enough. Some snarky thing. And John Edwards says something very similarly snarky. Debate's over, the se or the second half of the debate, Hillary's on fire. She's doing really well. She's, she kind of turns things around. And after the debate is over, Karen Hicks, who was um, Hillary's state manager, is making a beeline right towards Scott Spradley. And Scott is saying, oh, my God, I screwed up badly. I'm in trouble. And she runs up and gives him a bear hug and says, Scott, I love you. And she's like, I love you, too. What's up? She goes, that question did it for us. So there are things like that, these moments in the debate in, in New Hampshire yeah. that really can have an impact, even though they're tiny little moments. We won't see one of those. What's amazing about that story is that, you know, Scott Spradling, Karen Hicks, I can't tell you how incestuous the, all the relationships are. I don't mean that literally for our national listeners. I, I Not that we're, but, you know, all these people go back years with one another. And what I used to 
when I worked for Paul, what I used to call the democratocracy of New Hampshire. It's, I can speak to the Democratic side. It's, boy, these, like, Scott and Karen know each other real well. Anyway, that's a, that, you just don't get that in California is all I'm saying. And then Hillary, and of course, Hillary cried in 2000, made her a real person. And anyway, and she sent out a whole bunch of flyers to young women about Obama's missing votes in, in Illinois because yep. he was really yep, against, yep, yep. he was really not pro, he was really a pro-life person. And someday we'll talk about uh, my discussion with Barack about the, that that debate that we talked about yeah. in preparation. Oh, well, well, but why do we make that day today? We're I here. Had, yeah, I had said, Barack, you really need to be presidential. You need to be kind of above the fray. You need not, you know, you don't have to attack anybody. You don't have to, you know, you're a very smart, clever guy. and You don't really need to be that clever. You just need to be presidential. Take command of the stage in, and so that people see you as the next president. And I said, if it if there's a chance to be snarky, don't take it. Oops. Oops. <laughs> That's all right. You know what? That fresh-faced young man, how what did what did Joe Biden call him? <laughs> he turned out okay. He did all right, despite all right. everything. All right. We okay. we've got to get you out of here on this. Andy Smith, thank you so much. Really delightful. And uh, you know, this is the Super Bowl, and I think you're crushing it. I think you're running away with it. We really appreciate having you on Beyond Politics. Thank you very much. I just leave with one cautionary message. The polling industry is in the midst of a paradigm shift in how we collect data. And you should be very cautious about looking at any polls, really look at the methodology and understand that there is no gold standard anymore and that we're not going to have a gold standard in how we do political polling for another three to five years. And by that time, technology may have moved on again. So just be very cautious about that, uh, about how you understand polls. Hey, anyone who's willing to give that kind of a disclaimer on their professional work adds credibility in my mind. All right, Andy Smith, you're the best. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. This was a lot of fun, guys.